Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist, and I'm joined by my fellow writers, starting with Michael R. Fletcher. Oh, that's me, uh, Michael R. Fletcher, author of the Manifest Delusions books. And Dirk Ashton. I am Dirk Ashton, even though I just now noticed that Mike's got Dirk Ashton down at the bottom on his screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I was Peter V. Brett, but I, uh, I wrote the Paternus trilogy. And we have the real Peter V. Brett right here in the flesh. Hi. Uh, hi, I'm Peter V. Brett, author of Demon Cycle series from Delray Books. Uh, I was going to make some sort of flesh joke, but then, like, I just <laughs> do I it, lost it. Do there was there was a joke there, and it. I just missed it. Uh, just floated away in the ether. That's all right. That's all right. And um, yeah, today in this episode, last episode, we had Peter on, uh, and we just kind of talked generally about his books, which was awesome. And in this episode, I thought we could talk a little bit about your writing process, Peter, because it sounds like you started off. Uh, writing in a very interesting fashion. And is it true that you used to write a lot of your book on basically like a BlackBerry phone while on the subway in New York back in the day? Uh, it is true. It is true. Um, so I, I wrote the first draft of The Painted Man, which would later become The Warded Man, uh, you know, at home on a computer at, you know, in my spare time. Um, and I sent that off to an agent who then, uh, rejected it and then, uh, but asked if I had anything else. And I sent him another book and he rejected that too. But then he said, Hey, you know, that painted man book has a lot of potential, but it has a lot of big structural problems that come from the fact that you clearly are a self-taught author and, uh, are making amateur mistakes. And it was, you know, well, it was like sort of think. a, it was you a gut punch, but it was off. also a gut punch where it's like, you know, 
it was like, you need to level up and you can, and I believe that you can, and you have something here that you can work with, but you've got to level up. And he gave me this book on writing called Writing to Sell by Scott Meredith. And I read it and it had a lot of really good advice about story structure and um, the emotional arc of a story. And uh, I looked at the draft that I had of this book and realized that it needed a lot of work. Um, so I effectively cut 60% of the book and threw it away and left you know, only the core story and then like wrote out like a bulleted outline skeleton around that of what I needed to write from scratch. Um, whole new characters, you know, to explore different parts of the world and like whole new storylines. Like there's a lot to do. But at the time, like I had a job and I had a girlfriend and I had a life and like uh, in New York, like I was working until probably 6 p.m. I didn't leave work till at least 6 p.m. Um, and then, you know, I had to commute home and I had to spend time with my partner and, you know, do all the, the life stuff. And I just didn't have a lot of time to write. But I had this big agent who was saying like, hey, you've got potential. You can do this, you know, get in there. And so I realized that like I had to make time somewhere, like something in my life had to go in order to create this little bubble of time to write. So um, partner, and she was out of there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah quit my job, moved under a bridge. Um, <laughs> so uh, I gave up my reading time on the on the subway commute to and from work. So I lived in Brooklyn. I worked in Times Square. The commute on a good day was 45 minutes. Sometimes it could be an hour and a half if there were like subway problems or whatever. Um, and I would get on the train with like a big ass fucking fantasy novel like Robert Jordan or something. And I would just, you know, put my headphones on and read. And I didn't really care if the train took too long because I loved reading. And that was like that was my quiet time during the day when I didn't have to talk to anyone. Um, but that was the only thing that could really go at the time. And so I had a, like a windows phone. This was like before the iPhone was a thing. Um, so it wasn't a Blackberry, but it was very similar. It was like a windows phone and it had like a full, uh, Q W E R T Y keyboard with like the real buttons where you'd press the button and you would like feel like a yep. little haptic. Yep. And so you knew the button, you oh, knew yeah. that the bus button had been pressed. And it had a big screen and a very scaled down version of Microsoft Word where you could um, type on the phone. And then when you plug the phone into its dock, remember when phones had docks, like mm -hmm. you'd plug it into its dock yep. and it would sync with the computer and update the file. And then you could open up that same file on your computer and type into it and then sync it back and have it. And so it was very easy to toss it back and forth. Um, you couldn't do big files. And so I broke the book into individual chapters and I would load, you know, one or two chapters onto, onto the phone and I would get on the train in the morning and I would like shove an old lady out of the way so I could get a seat and, and <laughs> put my headphones on. And I would just like put my head down and write for 45 minutes. Um, I was writing about 300 words on the way to work and about 300 words on the way home from work. And then I would get home and sync it back to my computer and like fix all of the thumb typos 
and then write like another 400 words so that I could end the day at about a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a year. Uh, and I would say that 60% of the warded man was written in that fashion. Um, and even the, even the chapters that I carried over from the previous version got edited and rewritten quite heavily. Um, and so after a year of doing that, I had that final version of The Warded Man, and I sent that back to my agent. And this time he was very excited and eager about it, and uh, we went right to market. Uh, I cannot imagine an agent taking the time to do that these days. Yeah. I mean, that is, I've never heard a story like that before. It's uh, these days, I mean, I think I started querying the first time, like back in 2008, 2009, you know, and mm. it's, if you got a rejection, you were like, yeah, you took the time to reject me. Sure. <laughs> you know, you just never heard back from, from a lot of them. And I, well, I mean, I even to this day, that's, that's still true, but to, to get like, yeah, you have potential and I, I see, I can see where that you can do this and to give you that nudge and just to take the time. That's uh that's kind of amazing. Well, two things about that. One, um, my agent, Joshua Bilmes, does do that sometimes. Like, not often. Like, he only takes on a new client, you know, once every other year or so. But he absolutely does sort of try and find young writers who haven't quite leveled up to professional levels but are, but are almost there and, and nudge them over the finish line. He's, I've seen him do that with several uh, promising young authors. Brandon Sanderson, not the least among them. Um, shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, uh, there's that, but then there's also the fact that I live in New York city and, uh, I went to a science fiction writers of America, Mill and Swill event, uh, in South street seaport in like, uh, God, I don't know, like 2003 or something. And, uh, at the bar, like I was hanging out with, with, um, my friend, Mike Cole, and he told me. Hey, that guy over there, that's Joshua Bilmes. He's a big agent. You should go over and talk to him and tell him about your books. And I was like, Shh, I'm not fucking doing that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? There's no way I'm going to do that. I didn't, I didn't feel that I was at a, I didn't feel that I was writing at a professional level at that point either. Like I was, I knew that it was what I wanted to do, but I still hadn't quite unlocked the box. So I had about four novels that I had written that had really good parts in them, but they also just had terrible third act problems or just meandered into a side places that they didn't need to go or whatever. And they just weren't professional level. Um, so I wasn't prepared to have that conversation, but then, uh, Mike sort of just shoved me over and he was like, deal with it, dude. And so I like <laughs> had a conversation with Joshua, sounds like, like at the sounds bar. Like Mike. You know, and he asked me, like, he was there, you know, like networking. So he was happy to chat with me for like a minute or two. And he asked me to tell him about my book. And I did. And he was like, pretty excited by the premise. And so he was like, you know, that sounds really good. Send it to me. Um, and I was like, I'm not ready to send it to you. I don't think that I'm writing at a professional level. And he looks me in the eye and he goes, you don't reject books. I reject books. So you oh, send yes. me the book and I'll tell you if it's good enough or not. Nice. And, and I was like, okay, fair deal. Um, and so I sent it to him and he wrote me this long letter about how it was not good enough. Um, yeah, but, it, it was like but a big he wrote you a long letter. Conversation. 
It's true. It's true. And so I think that, I think that, you know, my elevator pitch or whatever, when I met him was good enough. And, and also I think when an agent chooses to work with you, it's not just your book. Like your book is absolutely part of the equation and probably the biggest part, but they also want to know that you're a sane person and that you'll be easy to work with and that you're not going to like go off and, and do something that, you know, uh, you know, like go off message and like, you know, mess things up or like, uh, now they want to know that you'll be a business Fletcher partner. doesn't have an agent right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that they, they want you to be sane clause. Like, yeah, oh, yeah that, that, yeah. that, that, that real word there? Yeah. that's going to be much. <laughs> that's a tough one. So, so I think that there was something of an interview going on there where like mm. Joshua got a sense of the kind of person I was and like, uh, I'm sure that was a factor. You know, I I don't think it was every factor, but I do think that like say it's the same thing with publishers, you know, like they uh they want to know that you're going to be someone that they can work with and not somebody who's like just a pain in the ass all the time. Um and so uh it's not the only factor, but it's definitely a factor. Um and so maybe the fact that he took the time to interact with me after that was in some way related to the fact that I had like impressed him that I was like a, like a sane and decent person as well as like a creative. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. You'd have to ask him for the real answer. Yeah. Well, being, being, being good, being good to people is just good general advice for new writers. Anyway, don't be a dick is. is Yeah, that's absolutely the best advice you can have in any profession. Yeah. Um, and so I, and that's, that's been my approach to, uh, my professional career is like, uh, create this fictional Peter Brett who is very outgoing when in fact I am very introverted and, and just like be myself, but like myself is kind of a nice person. And so I just try to be nice to everybody and like, you know, not seek out conflict just to like create clicks and likes and shares or whatever. Um, and it's worked for me. Yeah. yeah, I gotta say uh, the, yeah, the digital thing. <laughs> this this sort of setup makes that a lot easier. Uh, I would and could never do this if we all sat down in a room together. It would be so very different than sitting in my office in my comfortable space. Uh, also extremely introverted. So this, it is so much easier to be, um, you know, apparently friendly <laughs> at a at a nice safe remove. When it, you know, so you 20 were complete- minutes from now, it's like, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> so you were like completely faking it when we were hanging out in Indianapolis? Dude, I was faking it so hard. I can't tell you didn't know I was faking. <laughs> because we're all faking it. Everyone is faking it. Like, you don't become a writer because you're like a, like a super social person, you know? Like, it's <laughs> like being a writer is a very, like, I'm alone with my thoughts kind of job. And so... uh it doesn't mean that you don't like people. It doesn't mean that you can't get along with people. It just means that like, you're also very comfortable being alone. And so, uh, the publishers, when you're dreaming of being a writer, you don't realize that like, in addition to writing books, there's like a dance on a ball in front of a crowd aspect of it that they don't, that nobody prepares you for. Like there's no training for it. There's no like, uh, they just shove you in front of a room, hopefully full of people, and then you have to figure it out. And so I absolutely like 
it was really hard in the beginning. And then like after a couple of book tours, like I just, you get to a point on, on when you're on a book tour, uh, you can get to a point where you're just so tired that like, you don't have the energy to, uh, be anxious anymore. And that lets you just go out in front of people and, and just, just roll. And then once you've done that a few times, like you get better at it and like you, you get like a shtick where like people ask you where you get your ideas from and you've got like a funny answer because like you've been asked it a thousand times. And like, so every author that I know has sort of created this alternate identity, you know, that their author self who can go out and be social and, and be, uh, uh, more extroverted. And then there's their real self, which like, as soon as that social event is over, they like, I, I can't talk to anyone for the next 12 hours. Like, um, you, know, you, you learn to spend all of your social battery in, in oh, yeah. like a two hour, uh, bar yeah. session. And then yeah. you go back to your hotel room and don't talk to anyone. And like, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty outgoing, but when I go to like cons, like world con, and it's just like so many people that I know or want to meet or new people I meet. Um, and even early on, just trying to meet some people and get to know somebody and talk to people about books and writing. It was, uh, uh, I, you know, uh, people think that I'm much more of an extrovert and, uh, there are times when I just has to have to disappear and go back to my hotel room and just sit quietly, yeah. not look at my phone, not do anything. Yeah. So it's, uh, it takes a lot of energy to be up like that all the, yeah. all the time. Even then, it, even when that's how you really feel, you know, like, yeah. uh, yeah. a lot of times, like I'm oh, so yeah. jazzed to be around people that like speak the same language that I do, you know, yeah. like, uh, about like books and nerdy shit that like yeah and you're not faking you're not you're not faking it you're real you're talking stuff but still that's exhausting and after like a couple hours you walk out or you go to the bathroom or something and realize holy fuck i'm exhausted (laughs) yeah it's it's just spending your whole social battery like in a very short period of time yeah um yeah Peter, I'd love to talk a bit more about your um, your writing process because sure. obviously, yeah, that first book, you were writing it while you were, you know, on the subway. How did things change for the second book? Um, was it the same process again because you were still at the day job? Uh, what? Yeah, that sort well, of I was at the day job. The coming years. What was that? I was just going to say first, uh, how long was it before you were able to write full time to, to quit the day job? I transitioned. first book came out. I transitioned very quickly, but I think that that is not the norm. And I think that no, people should not, not expect that to, to be the norm. And, yeah. uh, so like I sold the warded man in, let's say June of 2007, mm-hmm. um, to random house. And like, you know, it was nice money, but it wasn't change your life money. Uh, you know, so I still had a day job. Like I, uh, I had a job in pharmaceutical publishing that I didn't like, but it was a good steady job. And I made, de- I made good money because pharmaceutical industry like has money. And, yeah. uh, it, like I learned a lot of publishing skills. Like I was, um, I was the, uh, 
production supervisor. So like I was dealing with the, the, the printers and you know, like, uh, I was art directing things and, you know, building websites and making promotional items and that sort of thing. So it was all useful, transferable skills. Um, but I didn't like the job. Uh, and so I sold the book in 2007 and, um, as I said, like it wasn't, it wasn't enough money for me even, for me to even consider getting rid of my job. Um, but then uh, my agent was like, okay, now that we've sold in the US, we're gonna try for some international sales. I wouldn't expect anything to happen right away, but you never know. Um, and so I was like, okay, I was, I was so jazzed that I was gonna be a published author. Like I didn't, I didn't give a shit about anything else at that point, you know? Uh, and so, then I would say within the next three months, he sold the books in um, the UK, uh, France, and Germany. And, and when the German offer came in, all oh, and Poland, and like when the when all of those separate uh, uh, deals were calculated, I looked at my finances and I was like. Okay, I I it, I could responsibly like if I turn in a book, you know, every eighteen months, you know, and that will trigger like these you know chunks of your advance to be paid. Uh, if I do that, uh, I will make less than I'm making at my current job, but enough to pay my rent and and uh, uh, buy food and you know do all the normal things that I need to do. And so I made a decision that I would, uh, that, you know, that I could always get another job that I didn't like because getting jobs that you don't like is not hard. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I said, I have enough guaranteed money from these publishing contracts that I can, uh, take a two year stint as a full-time writer and see what happens and if at the end of that two years like i don't feel comfortable i can always you know my skills will still be transferable enough that i could go back and get another you know print production job or whatever um and that was 16 years no 15 years ago <laughs> nice yeah. um that's awesome good two years stint then yeah but the the second book uh, you know, like I made the decision to leave my job, but I didn't leave the job for probably another five or six months. Um, I transitioned out very slowly. I started working part time, you know, letting them do a search for somebody to replace me. So I didn't leave the company in a lurch or anything. And so I was still commuting for most of that time. And so I would say about half of the second book was also written on my phone. And then, and from that point on, I was mostly writing at a desktop computer, but now that I'd sort of broken the seal on, on mobile writing, I could also pull out my phone, you know, anytime when I found myself with an hour to kill, like, oh, you know, I'm at the bar and like my friend's not going to show up for an hour. Okay. I can write for an hour and I could just pull out my phone and do that. And once I was able to do that, I would find that like, even now, uh, I'll get big chunks of writing done at, at unexpected times just because I had a spare moment. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll write. Uh, and so that's been a really useful skill ever since. Um, and it also allowed me to switch to writing on my iPad, which is uh, uses sort of the same Microsoft syncing 
software, which is much more portable. And I just keep my iPad in my bag all the time. So anytime I have some spare time, I can just sit down and write. And so uh, that has made me much more productive in general, I think. Cool. I think that's such a good piece of advice, particularly for, <clears throat> I know a lot of writers listening to this are, you know, working full-time at their jobs. I had one of our listeners asking me the other day, uh, Evan was his name and he was like, uh, it's difficult to find time to write because, you know, I work 40 hours a week and I'm always staring at a computer while I'm at work. And then I come home and kind of the last thing I want to do is stare at a computer some more. So really having that mindset of trying to find these little cracks and little moments of time throughout your day to jot down a couple of sentences is very useful. And it's something that I find Yeah, and your your story is Um, inspiring. Peter. Yeah, it's very inspiring. All the the way through from your your, uh, experience with your your agent. And um, it is just so common. I I was in the film business for many years, and it's so very Mm. common for people to kill you with kindness. um, Where, uh, and I know it happens in, in publishing too, where they tell you the same things that guy told you, but they don't really mean it. And then when you send it to them a year or two later, they act like they don't even know who you are, right? I mean, that, that happens a lot. But the, the, the best part about your experience is that it's not all like that, right? That there, there are people who mean it when they say those things. And there are ways to write books when you don't have time to write books. So, yeah. I'm going to have to stop whining. <laughs> I, I, I Meet forget. your fucking deadline. Says, says the guy who's currently on the fourth extension to finish his <laughs> book on contract. I, 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 can't we'll attri- I can't attribute this quote because I forget who said it, but somebody like during my career told me that in Hollywood, everything is, uh, or in publishing, everything is, yet, is no until it's yes. And in Hollywood, everything is yes until it's no. Oh, that's meaning that's like very true you, of Hollywood for sure. Yeah, you know, like publishing is very diffuse. It's like, look, you know, that that is a big slush pile there. We're probably not even going to read your book, and even if we do read your book, you know, like if we don't like the first ten pages, we're going to throw it out. You know, like there's a, there's this very oppressive sense of just like hopelessness, well, and like I mean, it's a just, no. Just the uh, uh, just just the stories that that everyone has, you know, about all these books that became huge that were turned down 20, 30, 40 times, 40 different ages. Because the industry is inundated. Right. And with, then finally somebody picked it up yeah. and then it went in, then it, then it got in and they put out the name of the wind or Harry Potter. Right. It's, you know, those, yeah. these, these kinds of things happen all the time and you just, they just and didn't give up. But whenever you talk to, to people in Hollywood, it's very much just like, we're going to make this happen. And you know, like, we got this, oh, yeah. and, you know, like it's very oh, positive yeah. and very like mm-hmm. energetic, but yep. you know, yep. and, and they know too that like, yep. okay, you know, this is all fun talk, but at the end of the day, somebody has to put up a hundred million dollars to make yeah. a big special effects fantasy movie in order yep. for the, for us to go from like, this is a great idea to. Or TV reality. today, they spend so much money. Um, I know you've dealt with those. those sorts of things along the way. But there was a saying, I lived in LA and worked there for for six years. And, you know, we had had a saying that it's not a deal when they say it's a deal. It's not a deal when they sign the deal. It's not a deal when they write you the check. It's not 
a deal when you deposit the check. It's not a deal until you've spent the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you, you don't want to be cynical in general about your career and you don't want to be cynical, too cynical about your industry. You want to be just cynical enough that you don't get taken advantage of, but not so cynical that you're an unpleasant person to work with, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's that fine line. And, you know, it's just interesting how like you have to change, you have to adjust fire when you're talking to book people or where you're talking to uh, other media people. Well, rejection is hard. Rejection is yeah. hard. And, and even successful authors, even amazingly successful authors like Peter V. Brett, have people go on Goodreads and Amazon and write really shitty things about their books. You know, we you all sure did, do, you know, <laughs> right? sure do. you know, it's yeah, you can look, <laughs> but, but I know authors who, who can't look at reviews and if they do and find a bad one, it can ruin their whole week. Um, there's a certain thickness yeah. of hide you either have to develop or you have to just stay away from that kind of thing. I read every review of a new book that I can find for about three to six months after the book mm -hmm. comes out. Mm -hmm. um, mm, me too. You know, because like I spent two years working on that book. Like I want right. to know what people think about it. Yeah. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not made of stone, you know, like of course I want to know what people think about it. Yeah. Um, but I find after about three months, even, a, even if new reviews are steadily coming in, they've all started to sound the same. Um, and then I start to taper off reading them and usually it's the, by it's the same kind of praise and the same kind of, you know, right. Um, or, or you get like those sort of very generic, like criticisms, like uh, book two was very much a middle book. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> there was, but you see that criticism all the time, you know, yeah. where yeah. it's like, That's it wasn't the origin and it wasn't in the conclusion. It was very much a middle book. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure was. Yes, that's what the second <laughs> book of a trilogy is. Um, well, what it is. And so, like, you start to, like, phrases like that, you start to see them over and over again. And, like, but in those first couple of weeks after a book comes out, like, I really want to know what people think. And if people write a really negative review, like, it can hurt my feelings sometimes. Or other times I'll be more likely, like, oh, I wish I could argue with this person. <laughs> like, yeah, but you like, don't dare. You yeah. don't dare. That never, clearly you didn't I read never, chapter I've five never or else you want, wouldn't have I, all these problems. Like, exactly. You've never once – I've never once seen that end well. Yeah, for of anyone. course. Of course. For anyone. Um, yeah, that way lies madness. But I've also never once in my entire 15 years uh, as an author, I've never once read a review of my books that made me say, oh, I wish I had done that differently. Never ever. And so like no. – it, it's become more like that's great. Some people like the kind of books that Peter Brett likes and some people don't. And like, what are you going to do? Like, I, I don't mm -hmm. feel like it's something that I have a lot of control over and I don't, but I don't also, like, I, I don't feel like, Oh, if only I hadn't done that one thing, or if only I had, you know, changed that plot point or whatever, I've never felt that way. It's always just yeah. like, well, I guess those people don't like Peter Brett books and I can feel bad about that. But like, there's also not, not a lot I can do about it. Sure. Um, that's awesome. That's fair enough. Um, maybe last kind of question before we wrap this up uh, is, so we've talked about the kind of early ways that you were getting your writing done on the subway train. What does it look like now? What does your writing process look like for, for a book these days? All the way through from like, you know, starting off with your ideas. Do you outline? Do you just get straight into writing? 
And then what does your kind of day-to-day writing look like? Uh, it's evolved a lot over the last, uh, I'd say, 20 years. Um, my The first few books, the first four novels that I wrote were mostly just uh, pantser, you know, ma- made it up as I went along. Um, and even the first version of The Warded Man, uh, I made up as I went along. Um, and that was why I ended up having to throw out 60% of it was because I made it up as I went along. And then I ended up in a place that was not, a, not where I wanted to end up. And like, you know, I went down the wrong path and like, uh, just the latter half of the book was garbage and like, didn't end the character, didn't put the characters in a place where I wanted them to be to set up further story. It was just that. Um, and so after that, like I, when I did that rewrite and I made the like a bulleted list outline of, of where the story should be, that became my writing style. And so for every book, and it's gotten worse with every book, but uh, at this point, my outline, I call it a step sheet for, my, for one of my novels, is usually 150 to 200 pages long. Uh, and is just a bulleted outline of everything that happens in every chapter in specific, you know, like, here's a little witty bit of dialogue, and this character does this, and this, you know, these people fight, and it resolves like this. And uh, so, like, really on a granular granular level, I lay out the entire story, um, and I break that into chapters, and I break that into scenes, so that when I sit down to do the writing... I'm mostly focused on the emotional state of the characters. Like, how do they feel as they experience these things that I already know are going to happen? And so I don't have to worry that I'm going to paint myself into a corner. I don't have to worry that, like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't have to worry about, like, like, I've already solved the big story problem at the end. And so, like, I can just focus on, like, getting in the heads of the characters and making the reader feel what the character should be feeling as they experience all of this stuff. That's, um, that's a lot so, the same way that I, that I have to work because if I don't know what's going to happen, I can't, I just ramble. And, uh, but do you ever have to change it? Do you ever find that, that you need to change some things as you go? Cause that happens to me every time. Sometimes not a lot, but so, like every once in a while, like you'll get like, little changes in the early sections will build up to a point where you get to a chapter and like, okay, now I have to change this whole chapter because it doesn't make sense anymore. Or like the plot will have your character do something, but then when you're writing the scene, it just doesn't feel right. And you're like, you know what? They probably wouldn't do that. And I would be forcing them to do something that's out of character for the sake of the plot. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm going to turn this light on because it's the sun is setting here and I'm, it's getting dark, but it's going to make me yeah, sort of weird and yellow. So, no, that's perfect. That looks okay. good, actually. Um, nice. So, uh, where was I? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, we were talking, Just talking about, about your I, outlining I process and then your writing process more generally. Um, so then, uh, so over the course of the series, like I, as I was writing one book i would be coming up with ideas for how i wanted the story to progress and fleshing out the outline of the of the subsequent books so that by the time i'm ready to write the next book most of that outline is already done um and then i go through it a few times just to make sure that it's really strong and then i start layering prose on over that so it's almost like i have a first draft in the outline because a lot of times i'll pull full chunks of writing out of that outline and just paste them in 
Um, and then I just work my way uh, chronologically through the manuscript till I get to the end. Um, and there, you know, there are patches of time when I don't write at all, like when I'm on book tour or when I'm doing promotion for a new book that's about to launch or, or uh, when I'm editing, I'm not, I, I don't tend to also be writing new stuff. Uh, but when I am focused on, you know, like when I'm in that period of the writing cycle where I'm actually writing, I try and shoot for a thousand words a day, five days a week. Um, I feel like a thousand words is small enough that there's really no good excuse to not be able to write a thousand words in a day. Um, but it's big enough that it will, it scales up pretty quickly. And so if you just consistently do 5,000 words a week, every week, like after a year, you have a book. Um, and so that's, uh, like my overall, uh, uh, plan on how to do it but then real life gets in the way because i've got a five-year-old and i've got you know like we had this weird pandemic thing that happened and, and like the whole family moved into my home office <laughs> like you know because like i would just have the apartment to myself and everybody would go to school or work and then all of a sudden everybody's in the house and you know my partner lauren like uh is in meetings all day and so she's sort of like not shouting but she's using her like mobile phone voice all day every day and like i I can't write to that. And so I started staying up super late at night during the pandemic and writing, you know, I would write from like 11 PM to 3 AM or something because it was the only time the house was quiet. Um, and then I would sort of zombie my way through the day and steal a nap somewhere and then, you know, do it again every night. Uh, so it's, it's so it's always had to adapt to just whatever was going on in my life at the time. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's probably a good place to start wrapping things up. Before we finish this episode up, Peter, do you want to let everyone know about the latest book that you've just released a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> um, so uh, book one of the Nightfall Saga, The Desert Prince, uh, came out in hardback in 2021 and then releases in, paper, in trade paperback uh, August 16th, 2022, which I guess is a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and, uh, the nightfall saga, uh, can be read without having read the, the demon cycle series. Um, everything you need to enjoy that series is right there in book one, the desert prince. So you can start there. Um, but there is also like, uh, the original series that it's a spinoff from, uh, which is five books and complete and ready to binge. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, do you want to give us like a quick pitch of the Desert Prince. Uh, so the Desert Prince takes place 15 years after the uh, conclusion of the Demon War at the end of the Demon Cycle series. Um, it features uh, two main characters told in first person, uh, Olive Paper and Darren Bales. Um, Olive Paper is uh, the intersex child of uh, two characters from the previous series. Um, and... Uh, has to explore that uh, that identity over the course of the series um, while also having some pretty amazing adventures. Um, Darren Bales is uh, also the product of uh, two characters in the previous series and is born with uh, magic powers that are as much of a detriment as a, an advantage in his life. Um, his senses are so uh, acute 
that he has sort of a supernatural form of autism where uh, he takes in too much input for him to really process. And so uh, when he's having a conversation with someone, uh, he's getting all of this input, like how they smell and what they had for breakfast and where they've been and like what their heartbeat sounds like and are they lying? And, and uh, it pe- can become so overwhelming that it's hard for him to have a direct conversation with somebody because he's trying to process all of this other information while they're just having a verbal conversation. Um, and so uh, it's been sort of interesting to to explore those two characters and, and uh sort of see how they fit into this already established world um, in their own way. Uh, That's kind of a rambling answer. No, it's awesome. And, and, you know. No, that's awesome. And how their, their, uh, their parents screwed them up in a different way than their parents screwed them up. And uh, the result is they have to go off and have adventures. Awesome. (laughs) Sounds great. Great. Well, Peter, thank you so thank much you, for yeah. joining us. Really appreciate you coming on the thank show. Thank you for having me. Um, and yeah, everyone listening or watching, thank you for uh, checking out this episode and we'll see you next Great. time. Bye, Bye everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, man. Bye. Ciao. As we end this episode, I wanted to give a big shout out to our Patreons who have support the show and an extra special shout out to our legendary wizard patrons, Talon and Daniel. If you want to help support the show and get access to a huge library of uh, exclusive patron-only episodes, go to patreon.com forward slash wizards warriors words. You can find the link in the show notes below.